Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Every one of us here has been given a gift, haven't we, in this right here? That's what we just sung, um, pleading. If we were singing that, we were pleading with the Lord that he would take his word and that his Holy Spirit would um, impart God's grace to us through his word. So um, before we begin studying verse by verse what we read earlier, will you pray with me? Father, we come to your word this morning, and, and as we just prayed by singing, we ask for your, your word. We ask for it to, um, to be made clear to us as we read this passage. Lord, I pray that um, there would be nothing that is distracting or um, something that we're, we struggle with as far as comprehension in it, but that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us. That, that's the promise you've made. That's the ministry of your Holy Spirit who indwells every single believer here, is that he would illuminate the truth of your word to us. And so in confidence, we ask in faith for that this morning. Um, but as we just saying, Lord, we, we don't want to just understand this. We want to be transformed by it. This word is alive. It's powerful. And it cuts sometimes. Uh, but it does that in order to heal. Would you do that through your word for us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Acts chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 32. <clears throat> and uh, the passage that we studied together last week, it taught us how the church responded to persecution. Uh, they turned to prayer, and they turned to God's word, the promises in God's word, and they turned to the power of the Holy Spirit. And when they did that, the place in which they came together, it was literally shaken, it said, because they were all filled, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the very end of verse 31 tells us the result of all of that was that these Christians spoke the word of God with boldness. And this morning, the section of scripture we're going to study together, it enlightens us about uh, what Holy Spirit filling looks like. Uh, we're taught about some features of being filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, and God reveals to us his desire for how he wants his church and each person in it to consistently look and act. That's not something he just wants to happen every once in a while, getting filled with the Holy Spirit. He wants that to be your everyday consistent experience, and he shows us what that looks like here this morning. Uh, beginning in verses 32 and 33, we learn that a, a Christian who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, they will have a new perspective on purpose. Uh, in selflessness, for sure, in verse 32, these, these Holy Spirit-filled Christians had a new perspective on their purpose in life. That scene in verse 32 is something that we don't see uh, in this world outside of someone who has the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in them. They were all selfless. Verse 32 says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, 
and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. They were unified is what's being described here. They all had one heart and one soul. Now, what unified them? Because that's an extremely important factor uh, for any genuine unity or any lasting unity. It was that they were all in Christ. It says, uh, as this verse describes, they were a multitude But the unifying factor was that they were a multitude who believed. Most of them had trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior just a few chapters back. Uh, As far as time goes, uh, probably uh, just a few days prior to this. And they were a multitude of very different people, different personalities, from different places, different cultures. They had different languages. We learned that in, in Acts 2. But what knit them together, what unified them, was their new common primary identity. They had all been redeemed. They had all been born again by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So self was gone, and the Savior was now primary. And with that new position in Christ came a new purpose. They were no longer their own. You know, in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm sorry, 6, 19, and 20, uh, it describes Christians this way. It says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your what? You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, there's a new perspective on purpose right there. Glorify God. He is who you're to live for now. Jesus Christ is your new primary identity as a Christian. He is who you're, you're all about. And listen, when a Christian is filled, I mean filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, there is a selflessness that causes a unity with others who are just like them. Uh, me is emptied out. He, he fills that void. Any lack of unity in the church is because of me trying to weasel its way back in. Me trying to reclaim what has been given and should stay given to the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. So when Christ is our primary common identity, when when he is who every one of us is all about, there will be a unity like we've seen so far in the church. There will be a a selflessness and it will enable bold, powerful fulfillment of the purpose like we see in the rest of this passage and in the rest of these features of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's a little sneak peek of what's described in detail later at the end of verse 32. It says that these Christians with a new common primary identity who had a whole new perspective on their purpose in life, they were selfless to this degree. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. They had possessions, but they did not lay claim to them as their own uh, because They were now possessed by Christ, and even they themselves were not their own. As I said, God's Word gives us a little bit more on this later. But secondly, the Holy Spirit-filled believers here, they have a new perspective on their purpose. That's evident in in soul winning. Now, that's kind of an old-timey word uh, for what Jesus had told them their new life purpose was now. Um, They were to glorify God by making disciples. That was a great commission, command that Jesus gave them in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, as you are going, make disciples. Um, And that was the command Jesus gave them in Acts 1-8, immediately before he ascended to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to indwell them and to fill them. Uh, Jesus promised in Acts 1-8, in order for them to accomplish their new life purpose, that they would receive power 
after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the word, like we say here, there, and everywhere. And I hope you have seen, as we studied together, uh, the record here in the book of Acts, uh, from, from Acts 1-8 all the way up to here, in Acts 4-32, that they wasted no time. In, in obeying the command that Jesus had gave them, this great commission, no, for, for four chapters now, um, that is all these Jesus followers had done, make disciples. A feature of being filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is having a soul-winning heart, a heart that wants to be used by God to point others to Jesus Christ and uh, to be used of God to uh, help them trust Christ as their Savior. Now, I mentioned earlier that's kind of an old-timey, maybe an old-timey Baptist word for, for what Jesus commanded. I don't know that it's my favorite simply because it can cause a, a misunderstanding uh, that might even cause us to not truly obey what Jesus told us to do. Uh, the command in the Great Commission is actually for us to, as we are going, make disciples. And so what we mean when we say soul winning, well, that's only the the initial step, right? That's just the first step in, in disciple-making. Um, you know, part of the reason the church of, of Jesus Christ is in the state it is in currently is that for years we might have done pretty good on that first part, that initial part, sharing the gospel, um, urging people to trust Christ as Savior, but often, too often that's where it ended. Uh, we might have given a testimony about this many or, or that many people got saved, but then there was a whole, not a whole lot uh, after that. The, the command of Jesus, the, the new common purpose that every single one of us has as followers of Christ is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So soul winning, uh, evangelism, that's obviously a, a key component. Nothing else can happen if it doesn't happen. But there's a whole lot more to disciple making. Amen? There's a whole lot more. It takes commitment. It takes time. Very often it's messy maybe even painful and disappointing. And that's what we're called to do. Verse 32 tells us that these Holy Spirit-filled Christians, they, they continuously committed themselves to this new purpose. It says, And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Uh, in verse 33, that's such a short verse, such a short description, uh, but it's got everything that we need to follow their example. They had great power. Why? Were they just the most amazing speakers? I mean, this evangelist that you were just hoping would come to your area so you could go hear him preach? I know this is Peter, former fisherman. No, it's, that's not why they had. Um, the rest of the verse tells us what the source of their great power was. It says great grace was upon them all. In the, in the Greek, great is, is mega and power, dunamis, that's dynamite. They had explosive mega power in winning souls and discipling them because they had great, they had mega grace. Where does that come from? There's only one place, only one source, capital S, God himself. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ gave them this great grace and this great power for their new purpose in making disciples. And, and you know what needs to be so encouraging to us here this morning? That hasn't been withdrawn. I mean, what's available to them is still available to you and I, that, that mega grace that will give us mega power to, as we are going, make disciples. It is available to every single one of us who is here this morning. If we will be filled with the Holy Spirit like they were, if we will participate in our new common purpose 
as Jesus followers. Now, there's another feature of being filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ that's provided here. We'll have a new perspective on possessions. We see that in verses 34 through 37. Uh, in service to each other, needs quickly arose in this multitude of believers in the newly formed church. Remember, um, these were people who had come. They were Jewish people uh, or people converting to Judaism. They were coming to the Jewish feast of Pentecost, coming from all over the then known world to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast. And it was there that they heard Peter and the other Christians preach the gospel. It was there that they had repented and believed and received Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so a trip that was supposed to last a week, it turned into a an extended stay. And, and here's even more evidence, I think, that Christ's concept of, of you and I fulfilling the Great Commission, it goes so far beyond just soul winning. They stayed there because they needed to learn what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, among the thousands of people who were there, uh, money and supplies that they brought for that week-long trip, it began to get low. And verse 32 told us of the selfless sharing that was already going on. They had all things in common. But as time went on, the needs became greater. But then so did the service and their ministry to each other. These are very significant measures that these Christians undertook that are recorded in verses 34 to 37. It implies that there was a significant need. But in selfless service to each other, they met that need. I had a local individual, not associated with our church, he, he was here once, and I think he grabbed a bulletin, and he asked me how often I preached on money, um, must have looked at our weekly offering, <laughs> and uh, I explained to him uh, that I hadn't yet, uh, I think it was about a year and a half in here as your pastor, and I told him that, that we preach in an exegetical, expository manner, we go through books, and um, so it's not an issue of avoiding that topic. We just hadn't got to where Jesus addressed that yet. And um, I assured him that we would study it together. And that's because God's word teaches, uh, or at least it references money or, or how we handle our possessions more than anything else in the Bible other than sin. And that's often the problem with how we handle our money or our possessions and sin. But, but in selfless service to each other, these Holy Spirit-filled followers of Christ, they had a totally new perspective on possessions. That's a feature of being whole, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. They understood that their role with what they owned now, when they didn't own it, was stewardship. They realized they didn't own anything. You know, the, the, probably the shortest yes, yet best summary on what God's Word teaches regarding stuff also probably the best starting point for gaining a new perspective on possessions is this. God owns everything. God owns everything. That's the biblical principle known as stewardship, taught so often by Jesus in his parables. Everything that we have is from God. Everything. He has given it to us to steward, to manage. And how that correlates with point number one, with our new uh, perspective on purpose, uh, it's important. We are to selflessly serve each other. We're to steward all that he has given us with a purpose of great commission accomplishment. 
Uh, to put it simply and concisely, and in opposition to the vast majority of prosperity theology that's so dominant in American churches today, we don't work to get. We work to give. That's God's design. We use everything that God has given us, not just money. It's not just our possessions. We use all of our time. We use all of our talents. We use every resource that we might own, that God has given, given us. Uh, we use that as a means for making disciples. We're making the name of Jesus treasured here, there, and everywhere. We do that as individuals, and we do that when we come together because we can do it even more powerfully, and we do that when we come together with other churches in our association groups. We can do that even more powerfully, and we do that as we come together with uh, churches in our state because that helps us do it even more powerfully and on and on. Verses 34 to 37, they, they grab that, that selfless service, that, that sharing to meet the needs of others that was referenced back in verse 32, and it takes it to a whole nother level. I mean, do you see the level of selflessness in their stewardship for great commission accomplishment here? They didn't just share what they had. Uh, the needs of that moment required that they sold. They sold what they had. What's talked about there? Houses. They sold their houses. Land. Uh, and there was an instance of this type of selfless stewardship already referenced way back in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. It's important that we learn this. Let me, I don't want to get sidetracked too much, but um, this is not an endorsement of socialism or communism. This passage, that passage, is often pulled out by people who, who want biblical support for that. Um, there's a critical difference here. This was voluntary, <laughs> Uh, it was also temporary, but, but this was volitional, uh, and, and that's a hallmark of the church of Jesus Christ, a, a fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is, is koinonia. Communism is not koinonia. They're very different. Communism or socialism, it says, what's yours is mine, I will take it. Koinonia says, what's mine is yours, I'll joyfully share it in order to accomplish the Great Commission. Nobody was forced to do this. It was a natural, willing, personal decision that was a result of their new common one heart and one soul purpose. I think it's important that I equip you to speak into culture. And uh, there was a decision made this week. This is not about politics. It's about the Bible um, for student loan forgiveness. There's no, it wasn't forgiven. It was just transferred to other people. <laughs> wasn't canceled out. I would say we're going to pay for it. We're not. Honestly, it's, it's your kids and your grandkids who will end up paying for that. And the reason I, I feel I need to bring it to your attention is because I saw multiple um, social media posts and I heard comments on other media platforms, TV or whatnot, that um, from people who disagreed that, that said, that they were particularly astonished that so many people who were against this or who were speaking against it were Christians. They felt that it was a little hypocritical uh, for someone whose whole religion is based on forgiveness to be against that. Well, um, our, our religion is based on forgiveness and grace. God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. But what Jesus did, again, was voluntary. He wasn't forced to do it. It wasn't a law that was enacted. He said, I, I willingly lay down my life. I can lay it down and I will take it up again. There's a big difference there. Um, 
It was also a debt that we could not pay. (laughs) It didn't matter what we did. We couldn't pay that debt. God had to for us in Jesus Christ. That's a bit different than a debt somebody will not pay. Verse 34 also tells us that this was prevalent. It wasn't just one or two people, but as many as were possessors as house or land. So everyone there who either owned a house or owned land, they did this. There was unity in the spirit of selfless service and stewardship of possessions. Unity in this feature of being filled by the Holy Spirit. They regarded people as more important than possessions. They regarded their purpose or God-given purpose in making disciples is more important than possessions. One individual is singled out as an example here. In verses 36 and 37, a man named Barnabas, whose name meant son of consolation or son of encouragement, he lived up to his name. He'd become a leader in the church. He'd become a missionary along with Paul. And God had Luke mention him here as an example of someone who had a new and biblical perspective on their purpose and on their possessions and being a steward of them. Another reason he and his example and stewardship might be put forth by God here is as a stark contrast to the perspective of a couple individuals that we find in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And there we're taught that a feature of being filled with the Holy Spirit is having a new perspective on purity. It's understanding the offense of sin. God's perspective on purity and the lack thereof. I don't know if there's a more impactful example of how God views sin in the life of a Christian than the one that we have right here at the very beginning of the early church. Uh, To some degree, uh, we might have to read between the lines to see what sins uh, um, Ananias and his wife were guilty of, but Peter describes their offense, the, the offense of their sin to God, Uh, In general, yet still serious terms in verses 3 and 4, God has Peter describe it as lying to the Holy Ghost, lying to God. Later in verse 9, God's word describes their sin as tempting the the Spirit of the Lord. Now, um, if you are like me, you you may have read or heard this account before, and and you kind of wonder, if you're honest, if the response of God here was a little much. (laughs) What did they do to deserve such drastic consequences? They may have seen the generosity of Barnabas and all these others. They may have seen how well they were respected for what they did, uh, to the point of even having a permanent record that we're studying thousands of years later. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira may have desired that same respect or praise from others. What's clear is that these two sold some property, and they kept a portion of the sale price for themselves, but they either outright communicated or at least implied that they gave the full amount to the ministry that was going on here. And God has Luke use the Greek word nophizomai for the words kept back, found in verse 2. Literally, it means to misappropriate, and the only other time it's used in the New Testament is in Titus 2.10, where it's clearly translated as steal. So that's what God thought. That was the offense of their sin. They had stolen from God. Uh, These two Christians, they wanted the image of great generosity without actually being remarkably generous. And instead of having a Holy Spirit-filled perspective on possessions, verse 3 says that Satan had filled their heart, not the Holy Spirit. Satan had filled the heart of Ananias. And instead of praise, these two were initially met with rebuke. Peter and the other church leaders discerned that Satan was at work this time from within the church. So this is a new threat. 
Satan had already attempted to attack the church to stifle it outwardly through persecution. That didn't go so well. They were bold. They continued the work of Jesus Christ. But here the devil takes a different course of action in his attempt to destroy the continuing work of Christ. He attacks from within through temptation. And we witness the sin of greed in their keeping some of the money. We witness the greater sin and what's usually behind any and all sins. We witness the sin of pride. Ananias wanting others to view him as so spiritual that he gave all when in fact he had not. And, you know, there are parallel sins that, that you and I might be tempted with even today. We can create an impression that we are people who are just devoted to Bible reading and prayer when we're not. And we can portray this image that we have it all together. And we see that all the time on social media when we don't. And even for leaders, whether that's a pastor or a deacon, or some other church leader. We can exaggerate our spiritual accomplishments or, or maybe the effectiveness of our ministry when things are truly not going exactly that way. Listen, Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't have to sell this property. They didn't have to. They didn't even have to give the entire amount if they did sell the property. That's Peter's message uh, to, to him in verse 4. He says, whilst it remained, when you owned it, wasn't it your own? yeah. And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? You didn't have to give it all. You could have given whatever you felt was right to give. More on this on a second, but I mean, this just shows how unnecessary their sin was. And really, all sin is unnecessary. Don't let Satan tell you otherwise. I mean, that's one of his main tactics to get us to yield to temptation. He says, you need this or, or you deserve this, and this will make you happy, and God wants you to be happy, right? Don't wait. Who knows if God will come through? Take it now. You need it now. This was all totally unnecessary. This couple was free to use their money however they wanted, except as a way to inflate their spiritual image and their pride. And Satan may have filled their hearts, but Peter says at the end of verse 4 that their sin, it was ultimately Ananias, something that he had conceived in his own heart. The devil can influence your life, Christian even a Holy Spirit-filled believer, but he cannot do your sinning for you. Ananias had a choice. We have a choice. Don't misunderstand what happened here. Um, Peter, or, or the church at large, um, they did not pronounce judgment. They did not, uh, Peter doesn't give a death sentence to anyone here. In fact, I, I wonder if Peter was as shocked and surprised as everyone else at, at what happened, at least initially. Um, the death of these two, it was an act of God. And it shows us how offensive sin is to God. It took the death of Jesus Christ to save us from sin. It has no place in the life of a Jesus follower. When the Holy Spirit filled new perspective on purity, it's clear in the objective of our, our salvation. We see that in verse 11. Um, if we might be led to wonder about God's swift consequences in this situation, the greater wonder that every one of us should have is that so often God delays his righteous judgment in our own lives. God is always just. God is always fair. He's never once been unjust. So often, he's amazingly gracious. But he owes that grace to no one. And we had better learn the lesson here. Don't presume on God's grace when we assume there will always be time to repent, time to get right with God. Time to be honest with God. 
when we're met with his grace, whether that's through conviction or any other way, we, we are to embrace it and to turn from sin to him. A.T. Pearson said, what we clearly have here is an example that stands forever as a lasting and awe-inspiring monument of what God thinks of sin, the awful offense that it is to him. Isn't God gracious, though? Is he gracious? Yes, no doubt. Um, And honestly, he's even gracious in exposing this sin and the threat that it was to the continuing work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through the church. I'm afraid today there might be a a committee that was formed to cover this whole thing up, leaving the threat undone and and never really addressed with God's grace. A Holy Spirit-filled feature is having a new perspective on sin, having God's perspective on sin, seeing it how he sees it, and dealing with it how he tells us to deal with it. Um, And that's through confession through repentance, to receive his amazing grace. That's the objective of salvation. I I, I really believe that God dealt with this, how he did, in his infinite wisdom and in his love because he knew what Satan would try to do with grace, and he was starting it right here. And as we go through the New Testament, this is a problem for, for just about every church, especially Galatia. They had like two extremes. Corinth struggled with this deeply. That's a problem in, in churches even in our day and our time, Satan just loves to twist the intent of God's grace in our lives. You know, you know that he tries to weaken it by adding things, like by adding our works as a cause of our salvation. But he, he does just the opposite as well. Uh, he tries to weaken God's grace by, by completely removing holiness or purity as being a necessary part of following Jesus Christ. And of course, we're not saved by any of our, our works, but we most certainly are saved for doing his works. That's the objective of our salvation. A life of following Jesus should follow Jesus. And this is progressive. And yes, it takes time. And there are battles won. And there are battles that are lost. There's got to be a battle, at least. We are to reflect Christ to others in how we think and how we talk and what we value and how we live. Don't misunderstand God's grace to us in saving us. He he did not pour his grace out on us so that sin may abound. Isn't that what God has Paul say in Romans 6? No, but but that through through our lives, through the Holy Spirit and through the word of God, sin can be crushed in our lives. Don't misunderstand God's grace. His grace does not make purity or holiness an unnecessary thing. The intent of his grace makes purity and holiness in our lives actually doable, not negligible. It's something that we can do. Doable because as recipients of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, guarding us from temptation. And when it does come, uh, guiding us to purity, conforming us through his word, giving us an understanding of God's word, we've been born again. We're new creations, new creations with the ability to say no to sin, Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to his word. The ability to say yes for his will in our lives. We've seen God's perspective on sin and his desire for us to have a new perspective on purity. And a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit always has this feature. They always do. They have a new perspective on purity. They have a new desire for it in their lives. They have a new distaste 
for sin or anything that would, would fight that. Have you ever received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever been born again, trusting in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross in that empty tomb to save you from your sins, to give you new life in Christ now and eternal life with him one day forever in heaven? If you haven't, do that this morning. I mean, don't wait another second. It might be the first time you've heard about it. It might be the millionth. Don't wait. Christian, you who have, do you want more? Do you, do you want this filling of the Holy Spirit that we've seen over and over again in four chapters and Acts? Uh, a filling of the Holy Spirit where, where you have, now have a new perspective on your purpose in life. That, so much to the point that, that you have a new perspective on your possessions in a world that's full of temporal and materialistic allures. And, and you have a new perspective on purity in your life, that, that it's a natural and consistent feature of your life. I, I want that. I do. And man, I want to be part of a church where, where that's a testimony of every person who is a, a part of it. And maybe this morning the Holy Spirit has convicted you of some wrong perspective, maybe a wrong practice in any one of these areas. If that's the case, won't you confess? Won't you repent of that sin right now? And as we respond here in a moment and receive God's full and free, amazing grace, don't presume on his grace, not a moment longer. Don't assume that there's going to be another opportunity to respond. Like these Christians who they laid down their gifts, it says here. Won't you lay down whatever is preventing the Holy Spirit from being welcomed in your life and from filling your life? Lay it down. The blood of Jesus Christ has covered it, if you will. I mean, it can be, it can be gone. No longer taking up space where the Holy Spirit should be fully filling your life. As Tommy comes and leads us in a, a time to respond, ask him to fill you right now. Tell him you want a spirit-filled life. You want that from this moment on. However, the Holy Spirit has used the word of God to call you to respond today. I just ask that you'd obey.